welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. Watching kangaroos is fun to a point, but they don't always jump when you want them to. I didn't want to get into a waiting contest. I also wanted more than the brutal honesty of mining camps. I left Broken Hill and 800 miles later came to a stop at a dune of fine red sand. It was clean as water, but if I kept going, I'd be wishing I had a shovel. I got out of the car, and almost at once tiny flies began buzzing around me. I kept brushing them away from my ears and my eyes and my mouth and my nose. Later, I asked somebody what people around here called these flies. He didn't want to say, but I pried it out of him, and he finally said, little bastards. I walked ponderously up to the top of the dune, but the view was more dunes, so I drove back a mile or so to pavement. This was the Lassiter Highway, named after Harold Lassiter, a prospector who died in 1931 while hunting for the gold vein that he said he had discovered about 30 years earlier. By accident, I had seen his grave in Alice Springs on my first visit to Australia. A ton of sandstone had been carved into the shape of a man squatting in the dirt, could hardly see his face, lost under a slouch hat and behind an immense beard reaching from his cheeks down to his big belly. In his hands there was a gold miner's pan. To the east of the dune, where I was brought to a halt, the Lassiter Highway links up in 130 miles with the Stewart Highway, which traverses the continent north to south and is named for John McDool Stewart. There is no G in McDool. Possibly the first person, certainly the first white person, to make that journey. Stewart survived Australia, barely, and four years later, in 1866, died in London. To the west of the dune and its flies, the Lassiter Highway downshifts in about 30 miles to the unpaved Great Central Road, which leads west in 900 miles to the gold mining town of Kalgoorlie. There are easier ways to get there, including scheduled flights from Perth. With one exception, the Laster Highway has no hotels or settlements along its entire length. The exception is a cluster of five hotels a few miles from the dune where I had stopped. It was Darling Harbor all over again, with these hotels too, flying the flags of a corps, the French chain. They were part of a master-planned tourist center called Ulara, which also has a gas station, an IGA grocery, a bookstore, and several souvenir shops. Almost a thousand visitors arrive daily at Ulara by air, where they are corralled into the Accor hotels. There aren't any bargains. Rooms run between three and five hundred U.S. dollars a day, and the place is often sold out weeks or months in advance. When I left a few days later, a flight attendant looked over the sea of silver hair in front of us. She said, they've ticked off one more item on their bucket lists. She had been to Ulara many times and knew what the visitors had come for, but she had never stepped off the plane. A few miles west of Ulara, a dead-end road branches off the Laster Highway. The road is heavily signed, warning motorists where they can and cannot park. It was midday, and the flies and the heat were bad. 
I parked next to a sign telling me not to. I got out of the car, and the interior word stream stopped. Sometimes I think I live for that silence. Antonio Canova, the sculptor, once said in peak that people see with their ears. He meant that rather than judging a sculptor's work for themselves, they accept the judgment they hear from others. Perhaps that's what I was doing. After all, I had been told, not only in words, but through pictures, that Uluru, or Ayers Rock, is breathtaking. It reminds me of a girl I knew at Berkeley who was almost breathless an hour or two after momentarily and by chance finding herself a few feet from Jack Kennedy. I wonder where Judy Miller is now. On the other hand, the first Europeans to see the rock were also stopped cold, and they weren't primed. They were either Ernest Giles in 1872 or William Goss a year later. If Giles saw Uluru, he saw it from a distance. In Australia twice traversed, he recalls that, quote, after a long and anxious scrutiny through the smoke and haze, far, very far away, a little to the west of south, I described the outline of a range of hills and right in the smoke of one fire an exceedingly high and abruptly ending mountain loomed. Giles definitely saw the Olgas, a cluster of mountains about 20 miles west of Uluru. He called them, quote, one of the most extraordinary geographical features on the face of the earth, like the backs of several monstrous kneeling pink elephants. He named the Olgas, too, oddly enough, for the Duchess Olga, a sister of Tsar Nicholas II. She was a serious mineralogist, so naming the mountains for her was not as absurd as it sounds. Still, the Olgas today are almost always called by their aboriginal name, Katajuta. William Goss, on the other hand, definitely saw and named Ayers Rock. As leader of the Central and Western Exploring Expedition, Goss kept a diary. In it, he wrote, quote, When I got clear of the sand hills and was only two miles distant and the hill for the first time coming fairly in view, what was my astonishment to find it was one immense rock rising abruptly from the plain? I have named this Ayers Rock. Goss, after all, was an employee of the government of South Australia, which in those days claimed sovereignty over the Northern Territory. And Henry Ayers of the Monster Mine was enjoying one of his stints as the state's chief secretary. It does not appear from his diary that Goss spoke to the local Aboriginal group, the Pichinjara, or learned that their name for the mountain was Uluru. That name appears in print for the first time in 1914 on a map drawn by Herbert Bezadow, a geologist on the Northwest or Wells Expedition of 1903. Bezado, by the way, was more than a geologist, and in a book called The Australian Aboriginal, published 1925, he writes of racial homicide. This was decades before the word genocide appeared. The William Goss Diary continues. This is a high mass of granite, the surface of which has been honeycombed and is decomposing. It is 1,100 feet above the surrounding country, two miles in length east and west, and one mile wide. 
This seems to be a favorite resort of the natives, judging from the numerous camps in every cave. The caves are formed of large pieces breaking off the main rock and falling to the foot. This rock is certainly the most wonderful natural feature I have ever seen. What a grand sight it must present in the wet season, with waterfalls in every direction. Goss was 31 when he saw Uluru, and 38 when he died of a heart attack. Henry Ayers attended his funeral. So did Goss's more immediate boss, George Goiter, the surveyor general who had demarcated Goiter's line. There's no fence around Uluru, so you can walk up to it, take a key out of your pocket, and scratch to your heart's content. No problem. Uluru is hard and smooth. The key won't do anything. Perhaps Goss should have known better than to call it granite, because even from the point where I stopped to stare, the rock's sedimentary layering, like magazines upright on a shelf, is obvious. In Goss's defense, the rock often does look and feel like granite. Like true granite, for example, it casts off onion-like exfoliation shells. Not only that, though Uluru is sandstone, the sandstone is composed of grains of granite from long-gone mountains. The erosional debris from those mountains formed a thick alluvial fan in an inland sea. The fan was subsequently caught in a mountain-building episode that left the beds standing almost upright. Erosion has stripped away everything in the neighborhood except Uluru. Until the 1950s, Uluru had few white visitors, and the administrator of the Northern Territory went so far as to declare that there was, quote, no future in tourism in the Northern Territory, least of all Ayers Rock. In 1952, however, an enterprising tour operator named Leonard, or Len, to it, bust a dozen hardy tourists about 300 miles from Alice Springs to a camp he set up just east of the rock and near what is now the aboriginal settlement of Mutitjulu, posted as off-limits to park visitors. His guests slept in tents and were grateful that Tuit had dug a well to supply a bathhouse. In 1958, the government withdrew Ayers Rock from the Southwest Aborigine Reserve and designated it as a special reserve. A pilot named Eddie Conlon, who had previously flown passengers from Alice Springs on aerial tours circling the rock, got permission that year to land on the strip half a mile from the rock's northeast-facing side. The strip is still visible on satellite imagery. Edna Bradley, working as a waitress at Tuit's camp, recalled that, quote, the pilot proposed a toast to the future of aerial tourism. Then he looked around the room. You know, this could be a goer. He sat down, nodded his head, and said, you know, we're really going for the international tourists for this. Bradley writes that another Tuit employee responded, you won't get that many. Tuit sold his camp in 1960, and it was rebuilt as the Red Sands Motel. The neighboring Boomerang opened 18 months later, followed by the Inland Motel and the Uluru Motel. 
1977, the reserve was renamed as the Uluru Parenthesis Ayers Rock Mount Olga National Park. By then, 50,000 visitors were arriving annually. Fearing the growth of a tourist slum, the government shut down the airstrip, canceled the ground leases for the hotels, and demolished them. A dozen miles to the north and outside the park boundary, a new airport opened in 1982. Three years later, the new tourist center of Ulara opened. The government transferred ownership of the park to the Aboriginal Uluru Katajuta Land Trust, which then leased the park back to the Park Service for 99 years. In 1987, UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, added Uluru to its World Heritage List. That list had begun in 1978 with the designation of a dozen sites. By 1987, there were about 250 places on the list, and today there are over a thousand. That sounds like a lot, but it's not enough, and crowds of visitors are overwhelming in many of these places. The great majority of the passengers arriving at the Ulara Airport don't want to drive. So agencies provide buses at the airport and offer two-night tours scheduled to the minute. At sunset, when the rock is especially colorful, hundreds of these visitors are delivered to a viewing spot restricted to buses. It has room for 20 or 30 of them, maybe more. When I came by, crowds congregated politely, quietly chatting to fill the time before the rock achieved its maximum luminosity. Energetic visitors hike the pedestrian path about five miles long and circles the rock. Some make it into a jogging track. Others pay a fee, join a group, and whiz around the path on rented segways, those self-balancing so-called personal transporters you sometimes see in big airports. I also saw a dozen or more visitors ignoring the signs pleading with them not to insult Aboriginal culture by climbing Uluru. Edna Bradley, the waitress from the 1950s, recalled that climbing the rock had been difficult and that people in Len Tewitt's camp had said, quote, what they should have here is something to hang on to like a chain. But others said that would be terrible just to imagine how ugly it would look. The chain was installed in 1964. Repeat after me. Bet on the money. In 2019, the admonition against climbing graduated to a legal prohibition. What would future visitors miss? Here's William Goss's answer from his diary for July 20th, 1873. I rode round the foot of rock in search of a place to ascend, found a waterhole on south side near which I made an attempt to reach the top, but found it hopeless. Continued along to the west and discovered a strong spring coming from the center of the rock and pouring down some very steep gullies into a large, deep hole at the foot of the rock. Seeing a spot less abrupt than the rest of the rock, I left the camels here, and after walking and scrambling two miles barefooted over sharp rocks, succeeded in reaching the summit and had a view that repaid me for my trouble. The top is covered with small holes in the rock, varying in size from 2 to 12 feet in diameter, all partly filled with water. 
The pools from which Goths attempted to climb are today called Mutijilu and Kantju, and with these names we bump into the tricky business of understanding Uluru as it is understood by the people who were here first. The visitor-friendly version begins with William Edward or Bill Harney, the park's first ranger or keeper. Appointed in 1958, Harney later wrote that two old men, quote, were brought to join me on my first sojourn at the Rock. They had been born and initiated there over 50 years before. As we wandered along the base of the mountain, they decided to tell me its story. I would say nothing, for asking too many questions would upset their thinking. After a time, we would pause at a certain place in front of or below a rock, the sight of which symbol refreshed their memories, and soon they would begin chanting in a low voice, which slowly increased in volume as they remembered it. Other people have written similar accounts. Charles Mountford, a geologist who grew fascinated with Aboriginal culture, writes in Ayers Rock, of, quote, Moanya, stern and reticent, but always willing to instruct me in the lore of his people. Ted Strollo now enters the conversation. A professor of linguistics at Adelaide University, Strollo was born in 1908 to Lutheran missionaries from Germany. He grew up near Alice Springs with local children for playmates, and so spoke an Aranda language as a mother tongue. Contrary to Harney and Mountford, Strollo writes bluntly that instruction in Aboriginal beliefs was restricted to initiates who had undergone mutilations the thought of which would make most non-Aboriginal men change the subject. If you're doubtful, check subincision on Wikipedia. Men doing this should first sit down. In 1969, Strollo wrote that, quote, ultra-inquisitive intruders are commonly fobbed off with untrue stories, as can be readily seen in the large amount of fictitious rubbish that is already being retailed by tourist guides and others to an unsuspecting and gullible public. Strillo dismissed, quote, the wholesale production of worthless mythological accounts written by the uninformed for the ignorant. Strollo went further and dared to write that Uluru was not an especially sacred place. He put it this way, and I'm going to quote him at length here, It is wrong to imagine that only the center's more striking natural features had ever been places of sacred eminence for the surrounding tribal territory. It is much nearer the mark to state that until the coming of the white population, the whole of central Australia, in a very real sense, was a sacred land for its original inhabitants. In central Australia, every landscape feature was associated with some mythological episode or some sacred verse. Hence, mythology was validated by the geography of the whole countryside, not merely by a few major waters or prominent mountains. Some of the greatest episodes commemorated by the Central Australian traditions are, in fact, associated with sites in which no modern sightseeing tourist would be interested. Certain places that few tourists would bother to notice outranked by far Ayers Rock. 
despite the spectacular scenic magnificence of the latter, which rightly evokes the admiration of all white visitors, regardless of its old tribal significance, unquote. So, were Harney and Mountford getting the truth or rubbish? Here at about 10 o'clock on a map of the rock is an exfoliation shell that, quote, symbolizes the dreamtime ana, or digging stick, of the Inma ritual. That's Harney. Along comes Mountford, who writes that the same rock is a knife that a poisonous snake used to kill a young carpet snake. Which is it? I have no trouble believing that it could be both, but I fear it might be neither. Circling Uluru, and with maps and competing texts in hand, I got more and more confused. I went over to Mutajulu, formerly called Maggie Spring. The waterhole is easy to find because it has a big parking lot and signs advertising segways. At the base of the rock, there's also a multi-ton rock fragment that, according to both Harney and Mountford, is the nose of a venomous snake a nose cut off by the angry mother of an injured, non-venomous carpet snake. It certainly looks like a nose, and it hasn't slipped more than a few feet from its original home. An easy path leads from here to the spring, which lies at the base of one of Uluru's erosional wrinkles. My biggest challenge was finding a time to visit when I didn't have to share the path with visitors having a good time. Was I at an important place? Harney leaves no doubt. Mutijulu is an important rock hole. Tulu'ulurichta, the mountain symbolizes their tribe and held the essence of life in the rock pool sacred to the all-knowing and everlasting serpent. Unquote. Harney explains that when the water failed, the people of the rock would come to its base. They would beg for meat and the serpent high atop the rock would disgorge water from its body. I can follow this, but Mountford tells a different story. Quote, the Aborigines believe that when the water is getting low, they can, by standing at the head of the gorge and shouting kuka kuka in a loud voice, entice the spirit of the dead Kunia man, who is resident in the upper rock holes, to send a stream of water to the Mutajulu waterhole beneath. I decided that I wasn't going to get anywhere near the truth of what this place meant to the Pitanjara. True, about two miles to the east, there's an Aboriginal settlement also called Mutajulu. I might have gone there, but Strello had as much as told me what to expect. Besides, the approach road was signed off-limits. I don't mind parking where I'm not supposed to park, but I'm not about to barge into a community that almost certainly has had more than its fill of outsiders. Instead, I did a quick survey of the black lichen around the pool, which indicated that the water level was two feet below its seasonal maximum. The stream channel above me was not only black, but dry. Greenery suggested that there were several pools between the base and the top, and flocks of small and very fast birds zoomed back and forth, both at my level and around the greenery high above. They were wonderfully agile and seemed to be having flies for lunch. I wished they would polish them off. I walked over to a place where the base of the rock flared like a cake whose frosting has begun melting. 
I don't know how erosion has produced that skirt, but I find myself patting the rock. Technically, it's an Arcos sandstone, the way I might pat a friendly dog. For all its size, the rock wasn't intimidating like the Four Thieves back in Sydney. It was more like Gap Bluff, where I could, what was that wretched word, geolocate, and not merely identify my location in the world, but become aware of being part of the world. I think back to the Aussies who went to Wichita. They'd see a major aerospace industry because Wichita is the birthplace of Cessna and Beechcraft. The city is also the home of Pizza Hut, which is huge in Australia. Maybe they'd want to visit the world's first Pizza Hut, which is now Wichita Museum. Perhaps they'd visit a Walmart supercenter. Australia doesn't have any yet, and Wichita has half a dozen. I'm flexible, but I'd make sure to tell the Aussies to visit Yosemite. I'd want them to see that the United States, too, has places where visitors can feel at home when they're a world away from home. That's such a good feeling. Your chest expands in a way it never does in an air-conditioned room. It's like the way I felt a few months ago when summer turned to fall. I was lying on a bed next to a double-hung window old enough to rattle a bit in its frame. I lifted it a few inches, and for the first time in months cold air poured over my face. I've almost forgotten what it felt like, but there was a similar moment this morning when I woke to discover that the world had turned white. I got up to turn the furnace on, then went back to bed for half an hour. I lay there feeling the icy air in my face and trying to decide if snow has a scent. I decided that it does, just as silence has a sound. 